and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. This week we watched the experimental vampire film Ganja and Hess, written and directed by Bill Gunn in 1973. Dwayne Jones stars as the wealthy black anthropologist Dr. Hess Green, who becomes a vampire after being stabbed with a ceremonial knife by his assistant. This leads him to meet his assistant's widow, Ganja, played by Marlene Clark, continuing his erotic and violent journey into vampirism. So this is a real cult classic that was sort of not widely known for many years. It didn't have a particularly auspicious release, as we will discuss. And it was really interesting to watch this movie, thanks to our Patreon sponsor, Asante, who requested it specifically. So this is a a little-known but beloved classic that was also remade by Spike Lee in the mid-2010s. And uh, in a slightly more conventional fashion, because as we will also discuss, this is an extremely experimental art house film. Yes, I feel like I should say just at the top here that I had quite a difficult time with this movie, which I don't... I mean, the movie is challenging, but it's, I'm not saying that as a critique of the film exactly. I just was like not really in the right frame of mind to be watching a really experimental sort of difficult film last night. And I had one of those experiences that you sometimes have while watching a movie where you're like... This is clearly interesting and like there's valuable stuff here. It's clearly artistically accomplished, but also like my brain just can't fully grasp what this is. So I did some reading on it. You did more reading on it as evidenced by our excellent preparation document that you put together. So I do have some thoughts. I mean, it is not following traditional narratives. It kind of sounds like the experience you had was similar to the experience I had when we did an episode on the uh, film Opening Night by John Cassavetes a few months ago. (laughs) And it's definitely kind of in this realm of experimental 1970s movies which were sort of rebelling against the rather conservative filmmaking structures that kind of existed until the 1960s. And this movie kind of just didn't get the same critical attention and mainstream audience praise because it's by a black filmmaker who had quite a lot of struggle dealing with bad studios and bad critical receptions that he, uh, you know, clearly did not deserve. Well, I think it it is worth pointing out that I believe when we looked up opening night that that movie was absolutely decimated by critics at the <laughs> it time. Was, it wasn't like there was this like huge ocean of mainstream audiences who were like desperate to see all of these films and no. thought they were like more accessible than today. But um, And I think yeah. it made like no money. The difference obviously is that Cassavetes had this role in Hollywood. Like he was famous for doing that, for for being an actor in Hollywood, irrespective of his directing career. And that gave him a certain cachet. And he made so many movies because he had that connection that allowed him to sort of make the money from acting and then finance the movies himself. He found it easy to recover from one or two flops, basically, which is the problem you always see with kind of marginalized artists of any kind, where like you can't, it's harder to get like the second chance. But when you look at Bill Gunn, it's like he didn't actually direct that many movies. This is the only film that got a proper release of his, but he was actually a very kind of 
prolific artist in general. Yeah, so he wrote many plays. He was also a stage and screen actor and a novelist and a poet. And he kind of came to prominence in the 1950s among this group of actors that included James Dean, Eartha Kitt and Marlon Brando. He was one of the few black screenwriters who were working in Hollywood at this point. This was kind of the 60s were the point where you actually started getting more serious movies with like some roles for black actors that were not just completely exploitative, which was kind of the case like before that in the classic Hollywood period. And then the early 70s is simultaneously where you get this rush of sort of experimental independent cinema for adults and also it's like the start of the black exploitation genre and this is definitely not a black exploitation movie even though it was kind of received that way by some white critics I think but it is sort of living in that overlap there was like some elements going on there that like will feel familiar if you've seen some black exploitation movies from the 70s like it starts with this song that like tells you what's going to happen in the movie but that is (laughs) that is like the only kind of narratively traditional part But yeah, Bill Gunn just seems like a really fascinating man. After he'd written like a few screenplays that had been made by other directors, he made his directorial debut with this movie called Stop. It was a Warner Brothers movie, but it was mothballed. It has never been screened. The studio basically suppressed it because it had too much explicit sex. And it was just like, it was too weird, basically. And he had a really unpleasant time with that. It sounded like he was treated very poorly by the studio. And also one of the producers seems to have embezzled a bunch of money and then left him in debt. So truly a nightmarish experience. But um, like we were kind of saying with John Cassavetes, where he was this very kind of prolific and beloved mainstream actor, he obviously had like a lot more access to mainstream roles that could help fund his directorial projects. Whereas even though Bill Gunn was this very respected, although much less famous actor, he was kind of restricted because he always resisted taking sort of demeaning roles. So that meant that he was labeled difficult by, you know, studios. I will not belabor the point. I'm sure you can understand that. But it kind of left him at this point of making this film in 1973, which did have funding. And I think the people who were funding it were kind of expecting a different type of movie. They were expecting a more straightforward vampire film that because it had an all-black cast, they would be able to market in the black exploitation genre, which was like extremely financially successful at this point in time but instead it's this movie which it's very non-traditional the way it's shot is immediately like different from watching a sort of more typical film of the period like it's very sort of dreamlike it's edited in this sort of hallucinatory way it wasn't what what they expected yeah well i think the black exploitation conversation is really interesting because as you say it wasn't just that white critics sort of received it as like we thought we were getting this and that clearly is not what this movie is like the people who funded the movie that's clearly what they thought they were getting too and then they received this film which is not commercial in any way and in fact after sort of initial screenings and it also it screened in New York and it screened at Cam where it was very well received they butchered it and cut out like a half an hour or something and tried to make it more commercially palatable, which also I think did not work, which is part of the reason why for a long time it was kind of under known because it only existed in this sort of butchered form. Yeah, they cut like 20 minutes out of it and released it as a film called Blood Couple. And then he and the producers and stuff just all took their names off it because they were understandably disgusted. Yes. But... When you were talking about his biography, and I obviously had read about him too, it was really interesting to me because the person who came to mind immediately as someone who also was just this polymath 
who was good at everything was Gordon Parks, who was a photographer, he was a novelist, he composed music, I believe he also wrote poetry, and very famously directed Shaft amongst several other movies, some of which I think he did Shaft too also, like he definitely did a couple other black exploitation movies, and he also did some more sort of like serious drama films that were not in that genre at all. And so you have these two figures who are both clearly geniuses and have all of these artistic talents of which filmmaking is only one. And Gordon Parks goes down the road of working kind of within the system and Bill Gunn does not and does this totally bizarre and challenging movie. And I love Shaft. I saw it for the first time this year. I think it is an incredible movie. I don't know that much about black exploitation, and I've tried been trying to watch a few more this year because it's this sort of area of film I would like to know more about. But I think thinking about this movie in the context of like it being a reaction against those movies is pretty interesting because I think, and like even in articles I was reading about this, I think there can be a tendency to sort of dismiss black exploitation films as exploitative, which I realize is in the name. And obviously, some of them are way more controlled by sort of like white Hollywood people. But something like Shaft, interestingly, Gordon Parks was a really smart and interesting guy who knew what he was doing. And that movie does have certain tropes that now you're kind of like, okay, but also is kind of doing interesting subversive political stuff, right? So I think that genre is pretty fascinating. But then simultaneously, you have this movie, which is just like, not interested in participating in that and again trying to sort of go against the grain in terms of plot but also as we'll talk about more in a minute like stylistically this is just like not interested in catering to like an audience that's expecting to be spoon-fed anything like you have to work really hard to even I mean follow fundamentally what's going it is on, not right easy to emotionally engage with the main characters which is like a hallmark of basically a lot of 20th century experimental films where it's like a lot of it is to do with visual metaphor and the various kind of techniques you're utilizing and you know shock value sometimes we should go into the actress in a minute but like just before we go into that there was a really great quote i saw from um ishmael reed who was one of bill gunn's sort of recurring creative collaborators a producer and writer and he said um we viewed ourselves as part of the race films tradition which extends back to the early 1900s and consisted of black filmmakers who weren't willing to wait around for hollywood to act right um and i thought that was really interesting because like part of the reason black exploitation was you know, it became like a mainstream genre is because like it could be enjoyed by all demographics and it was like an entertainment genre. And the concept of like what is referred to as race films, this was like in the mid 20th century and like even back into the silent era. These were movies that were made with all black casts and they were only screened in black cinemas or they were screened at night in cinemas that like during the daytime would be for white audiences. And they were made on very low budgets because they were not funded by mainstream studios. And like, it was essentially like a separate film industry with a separate audience from the films that most people are now aware of because they've, you know, they have like much more famous stars and are better archived. But that definitely seemed like an interesting way to look at this movie because it is so clearly and kind of intentionally working outside of the mainstream structures both in terms of like just the actors who are in it and like the way they're trying to transmit a story and like the themes and everything it's like this is not a vampire movie that you go and see like while you're drinking a beer you know (laughs) no 
No, indeed. Yeah, so why don't we get into a bit more of what actually happens in the film and the craft of the movie and how it's put together. I did see that, I think Kino Lorber put out a restoration of this movie recently, which cannot possibly be what I watched. Um, Showtime had it streaming and that was how I watched it. And it was not restored, um, which also is part of the problem for me because the audio track in particular was terrible. But before we get into the technical stuff, why don't we lay out a little bit more what actually happens in the film? Yeah, so the protagonist, uh, Dr. Hess, is uh, played by Dwayne Jones, who is known as the star of Night of the Living Dead, which is like an iconic zombie movie. So And then Marlene Clark plays the other lead, uh, Ganja, who appeared in a film called The Landlord that was written by Bill Gunn and also starred in his movie Stop that wasn't released. So like clearly they had like a really good creative relationship. And the movie begins in this really interesting way because instead of having like a traditional introduction to the protagonist, we see Hess through the eyes of his chauffeur, who's this guy who has a day job as as a chauffeur, but like his true vocation is that he's a preacher. Um, So the introduction is like, there's loads of scenes that are in this black church. And then we are introduced to this academic as he's meeting his new personal assistant, who's played uh, by Bill Gunn himself. And they go to Hess's house, which is clearly he's like very rich. He's got this wonderful house with quite a lot of grounds. And he's got this very classy art collection. And it's very 70s, not in like a hip way, but it's it's got a real 70s vibe. Like, you know, the way they're hanging out. And they have this like very naturalistic conversation, which is quite funny. Like it's like, it's a well-observed kind of conversation, which makes it clear that like Hess is not a particularly personable individual and the other guy is clearly a bit weird like his new assistant a weird guy and as the night progresses like he's meant to be staying over at Hess's house and in the middle of the night Hess wakes up to find out that his assistant is suicidal and is planning to kill himself by hanging himself off a tree deeply chaotic night which later on leads to this fight where Hess gets stabbed with this knife thing that's like an African ceremonial tool and we already know from the introduction to the film that this is what's going to turn him into a vampire and then his assistant shoots himself and Hess licks the blood off the bathroom floor in this great scene that reminded me of one of my favorite vampire movie scenes ever in the film Kronos by Guillermo del Toro, which is his first major movie, which is a fantastic and non-traditional vampire film, which involves a great licking the blood off the toilet floor scene. Um, I have no idea if he was influenced by this. <laughs> great image though. Um, but yeah, that kind of, that's his origin story. And then like the next act of the film is Hess very efficiently, like finding ways to get blood so he can stay alive. So like he steals blood from a doctor's office and he also preys on people who are easy marks so he finds a sex worker and murders her and her pimp and there's no kind of sense that he is particularly cut up about this morally at all he just does it in like a really business-like way and kind of when you read about this movie there's like a lot of discussion about how they use vampirism as sort of an analogy for assimilation because he's like this wealthy guy who it just feels completely fine with preying on all of these other people who are more vulnerable than him and is like not really experiencing any guilt about that at all. Yeah, the way the movie handles class is really interesting. And obviously sort of, there was one essay that I read talking about sort of the 
way that this house is sort of depicted and then also when Ganja shows up, who that actress, Marlene <laughs> She's Clark. She's so good. <laughs> she is amazing. She's great. As soon as she showed up, I was like, I'm immediately more engaged in this movie. <laughs> yes, I, I agree. But there is a kind of like all old money in a white sense, right? To the way that this house that he's living in is portrayed. Yeah. And there's this sort of garden party scene he has where like we're introduced to his son who like he clearly is not taken care of. Like someone no. else is caring for his son who is like learning French and is there to impress his like intellectual father. And then daddy just like fucks off somewhere else right. and ignores him. And when the assistant is in the tree thinking about hanging himself, he's like, I'm the only black person in this area. I think it's Westchester. So like, if your body shows up, the police will come talk to me because like, duh. A very cold response to a suicidal person. (laughs) But there's an interesting layer of that character who again is just very cold throughout until the end, which we'll talk about later. Of this kind of desire to present in a certain way, right? And then the vampirism is totally opposed to that. And then Ganja is presented as this, like, total rich snob lady in a very fun way. There is an incredible scene where, like, she's had the servant like, take her to town and they've gone grocery shopping or something. You don't see that. You just see them coming back. And this poor man is, like, like, pulls out, like, three huge grocery bags and is, like, balancing them. And then she, like, puts her hand out of the car, expecting him to, like, offer his hand to, like, help her out one step. And he has his hands full of grocery bags, so he has to, like, manage this somehow. And then she walks in the door of the house in front of him and lets it close behind her without holding it open for him. And you just see this guy being like, oh, God, like, these people. I was also interpreting her as really upwardly mobile rather than being, like, really posh already. Because, like, she is married to, like, someone's assistant. But kind of part of her whole thing is, like, she's... She had like a really hard childhood and she's really out for herself and she is determined to like have a nice life. So like Hess obviously represents a way to have a nice life. And it seemed like she was just extremely excited to have the opportunity to be mean to a servant rather than being someone who's like habitually mean to a servant because Hess has this like butler um, who in the remake is played by Rami Malek, which I was very amused here. (laughs) But like, yeah, Hess has um, has this butler and she is just like being just a huge asshole towards him. But like before she starts doing that, you can kind of see her like scoping him out. And I just thought that was like an interesting detail for her. And it kind of plays into the classic vampire genre thing of like the vampire being the aristocrat, you know, the the Count Dracula. Yes. Well, and also obviously from a racial perspective makes sense because the idea of like old money is a very white thing in America for obvious reasons and the scene you're referring to where she talks about her childhood which is just like a one shot close up of her face and like you don't even get anything else in the scene to my memory like you don't see Hess reacting there are a couple sort of monologues like that where you just you just see the person talking and this one of her was probably my favorite part of the movie because again the actress is just so good and it was a little more, it was probably the most like human 
part of the film, right? And she's talking about her mother who was not great um, and this really hard childhood she had and the balance between both just like the content of that but also the performance, which is really, like feels just really real and affecting in a way that a lot of the other parts of the movie are way more stylized, I thought was really interesting. And again, when you compare that to the way she's just like swatting around the place <laughs> in some of the other scenes, I, I found that really fascinating. Hess is more of a kind of impenetrable figure, I think, or at least I felt that way. Like what exactly is going on with that dude? I'm not sure. Whereas with her, it's not like traditional characterization, but I felt like there was enough where I could kind of well, she's a lot more dynamic because, you know. like, with Hess, it really made me want to watch Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Because, like, Dwayne Jones clearly has really great screen presence, but the way that character is written is, like you say, very enigmatic. And because it's, like, intentionally trying to resist traditional vampire tropes, it's quite hard to sort of keep a grasp on the way his story arc is kind of progressing. Because, like I said, there's no kind of guilt, and the way the movie is sort of portraying bloodlust it kind of comes in fits and starts you know so it's like it's not like you see him it's not like you see a more predictable sort of addiction arc because obviously this movie like is talking about blood very explicitly like in the context of addiction like they never use the word vampire right at the beginning of the movie the narrator chauffeur character is like describing Hess as being addicted to blood you know so it's like it's definitely like an addiction narrative but you don't really see him like really jonesing you know you just see him pragmatically going out and like murdering someone and it always happens in a sort of burst of very sort of realistic violence in the sense that it's just like pure chaos that happens really quickly and then is over um i have to say one small note i do love the fact that all the blood in this is just like full-on tomato juice like not even a it's like they're just like (laughs) we're not going to do real blood here this is going to be a tomato juice blood movie (laughs) i was thinking about that too it is so it looks like paint. Like, it is so yes. bright red. It's really funny. Yeah, I mean, the addiction stuff, obviously, we should talk about a bit because that's so clearly the superstructure sort of thematically for the movie. And this was coming out, you know, in a period where that was becoming a huge political narrative in America, although it gets really out of control in the 80s. And I found that way the movie deals with that concept really interesting because on the one hand you have Hess who is just like murdering people like as you say without really appearing to feel much remorse about it although the end is kind of interesting but on the other hand you have Ganja who also becomes a vampire and has a kind of different experience it seems and the movie doesn't seem to condemn her in any particular way. So it's not as though the movie is saying, like, this is a metaphor for addiction, and addiction is bad, and, like, needs to be stamped out. It kind of is ambivalent about the topic, which is pretty interesting for the 70s, and, like, definitely better than what might have been made, right? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of movies coming out maybe not quite here, but like within the next few years, like in the 70s, where, I mean, suddenly you get all these filmmakers that are just like obsessed with crime wave New York. (laughs) And there's like so many which kind of use 
drug addicts as a backdrop so it's just like shock value and you have someone show up and it's like oh this person's a cocaine addict like this person's on heroin and it's like there's no sympathy for it at all and i mean this movie is not even attempting to do anything that's like a realistic depiction of addiction like i said but it is interesting that it sort of avoids all of those stereotypes and also kind of avoids any sort of like racial commentary on the idea of addiction um and it does seem like bill gunn was like extremely explicitly trying to avoid the types of stories that he was seeing in black exploitation movies and like mainstream white movies with black characters in them at this point where there'd be like a very high number of like black female characters would be playing sex workers and there is very few wealthy black characters which is kind of a perpetual discussion in like black cinema throughout like american history yes yes indeed before we get to talking about the sort of last part of the plot I think we should talk a bit more about the style of the film mm-hmm. because it's quite interesting. Alienating in certain ways, I think, at least to me, but definitely very deliberate. And the music is quite interesting too, which you will have more to say about than I, no doubt. But um, the cinematography, there's a really interesting uh, little article in the BFI website about this is basically just, like, not attempting to conform to the sort of traditional rules, quote-unquote, of cinematography as you would get taught in, you know, film school. Like, I took intro to film in high school, and, like, they teach you that, like, the character, the characters talk, they go on opposite sides of the frame, like, really basic stuff. And he is just not interested in doing this. Which is a resistance to the sort of established white language of cinema, right? Which I think is sometimes really interesting. And then at other times, like, I definitely found it a little bit hard. Because, of course, we all learn to watch movies reading the the screen in a certain way. Like, we're programmed to understand this sort of visual language that most movies follow. And he's not following it. Which again is really interesting, but I think is part of why the movie can be a bit challenging, or at least I found it that way. But I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. (laughs) I mean, I certainly noticed that the cinematography was very unusual and like sort of off-centered and that sort of thing. But you could definitely tell it was different from when you're watching an incompetent film. Like it was clearly all very intentional. But I wouldn't say that I have particularly deep thoughts on it because I was just like experiencing the movie. Yeah, well, it was interesting to me because there are a lot of moments where there's a very deliberate sort of stylistic thing going on, particularly when the vampire stuff gets more intense near the end. There's a scene with Ganja and then this like other guy they find where like she's having sex with him and that there's just like lots of blood, lots of stuff going on and the camera is like doing a lot of really interesting interesting stuff and when he it felt like he was being more intentional with the cinematography I was really into it some of the scenes where people are just talking which is part of what this BFI article is talking about he'll kind of do a thing where like he's just kind of in this slightly awkward long shot to like get everybody in the frame and then just kind of have them talk I mean it's all very alienating yeah and it did feel a bit to me like just frame this differently, you know? 
and film was not his primary background at this point. And I think also because the version I was watching was not great in terms of just like the quality of the picture and the sound in particular, that in those wide angles, like often the dialogue was really like crunchy because like, I don't know where the boom mic was. So those moments I definitely was struggling with a little bit as opposed to, again, the stuff that felt more intentional to me. Like, for instance, the scene where we were talking about where Ganja is telling the story about her childhood and it's just a close-up of her face and you don't get anything else, which is obviously also not how a traditional Hollywood movie would, would work. But that felt like he was really doing it on purpose and I was into it, whereas some of the other stuff felt a little bit, like, creaky. Yeah, the one other thing I noticed was like there was this kind of recurring theme of he'd focus on these pieces of African art in the guy's collection like more than he was on people talking, which was kind of like tying into the way the movie sort of removes vampires from their sort of Eurocentric tradition because that's how it is in Dracula and everything is stealing from Dracula. And this movie is like very explicitly removing that idea and having it, his vampirism emerges from like this African artifact that he is stabbed with also dracula which of course is not the first vampire story no but in the world of movies yes (laughs) and literature honestly i mean polidori writes the vampire in the early 19th century but like i have read that most people have not read that including i think by the late 19th century i don't think that was a hugely read text but bram stoker's dracula has all of this like fear of eastern europe in it right? That, like, they're coming from the East and this sort of sense of, like, disease. To say nothing of, obviously, all the, like, weird (laughs) homoerotic undertones and, like, terror of that, too. And so, like, the movies don't engage with the European cultural politics of that stuff as much because they're mostly made in America. But it's interesting to kind of take the trope and remove it from that context, right? Because there's all of this stuff kind of bogging down that story trope. And in this, it is totally in a different context. And even though certain ways, certain things that happen in the movie are familiar, if you've seen vampire movies before, like they're drinking blood, you know, like, (laughs) we've all seen that. But a lot of the familiar stuff, both just in terms of like iconography, like there's no biting anybody's neck in this movie, but also the sense of just like threat of the unknown is not really what this movie is about, which I found really interesting because even outside of that specific like late 19th century context, that tends to still be the like primary theme of a lot of vampire movies and especially Dracula adaptations. And this is I mean, now not, you point you know, it out, it is very weird that this film lacked biting, but had explicit sex scenes. Because <laughs> yeah. there's like a sex scene in this movie that goes on for like three or four minutes, which is like long in sex scene minutes. Yes. But there's no mouth penetration, which is what one usually gets in vampire movies, where the biting is what we have instead of the sex scenes. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any thoughts on the music? Yeah. The music in this movie is by Sam Wayman and just fantastic score. I feel like people probably won't recognize his name, but you will understand why this is a big deal when you know that Nina Simone's real name is 
Eunice Wayman. <laughs> so this is Nina Simone's brother. Um, they learned music together as children. They toured for a long time. And Sam Wayman composed a lot of music for kind of big names during this period, sort of like mid to late uh, 20th century, like really innovative fusion style that kind of combines gospel and jazz and blues. And this is also like an extremely eclectic score with this movie. Because like I said, it kind of starts with this more traditional like theme song that you would get in a 1970s movie. But there's also kind of soul music going on. And there's also music that like I assume he is probably researched from African traditional folk music of some kind. But like that's the the goal that they're aiming for anyway. Because there's like some sequences in the film that are sort of like historical hallucinations um, and there's also parts where it's just like fully just trippy. There's just like noises. And there's this recurring very loud noise that happens uh, when Hess is sort of experiencing his vampire bloodlust and attacking people, which becomes this sort of auditory signal for like what's going to happen next, which I just found really effective. I mean, the music was my favourite part of this movie, but also it's probably the most accessible part of the movie. So maybe I'm just a pleb. But um, Sam Wayman did a great job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you are much better at talking to and thinking about music in general, especially in films, than me. So I was not having that level of, like, intellectual response to the music, but I also was like, the music's good. <laughs> like, like, it's it's notably really effective, I think. So why don't we talk about the end now? Because I think some of the sort of thematic stuff we've been talking about is hard to really fully get into without talking about how the movie ends. Like, I, again, was having trouble with this movie, and then the end was, like really kind of electric in a way that I found quite gripping. So it ended on a high. What basically happens is you see Hess go to this black church, which we've seen briefly at the beginning of the movie. I believe the chauffeur is also the like preacher at this church. Oh yeah, I should also I should also note that the chauffeur reverend is also played by Sam Wayman. Well so there this you movie go. co-stars yeah. uh, Nina Simone's brother. Yeah. And he has this sort of experience where, like, he's going up to the front and they're all kind of singing and praying over him. That is the most kind of emotion that you see from that character in the whole movie, I think. Yeah. And what winds up happening to him is that he goes back to the house and, like, dies slash kills himself by, like, standing in front of a cross that's in the attic. The exact science of how that works, I'm not really sure. <laughs> but, you know, fine. Um, again, some of the vampire stuff, like, you know, you can't go out at day or whatever, obviously not at play in this movie. And I also assume that there's plenty of crosses in the church, but, like, it's fine. I think he has to really focus on the cross. Yeah. <laughs> it's how I was interpreting this. I think you have to have a conscious desire for... Jesus's love to enter you because that's kind of what they're talking about in the like prayer at the yeah. beginning of the movie the reverence like you've got to accept Jesus so once you've accepted Jesus he will burn the vampire out of you <laughs> yeah which I found really interesting obviously because the movie up to this point I mean again you have that scene at the beginning with the church but then it's not like the church is being discussed throughout the film at all particularly and then it becomes this really important force at the end and we've seen him doing lots of pretty bad stuff and he's sort of like purified essentially and then dead as a result of this 
like spiritual interaction. At contrast with Ganja, who does not do that, and instead the guy who we've seen her having sex with, whom they've like abandoned in a field, and Hess had been like, no, no, he's dead. Um, he's not dead, and he like comes up out of the lake or something and runs toward the house. The implication is that they'll be hanging out together for a long time because they're both vampires. So the movie ends on this really interesting, ambiguous note, right? Where like one of these characters has the sort of like moral punishment in a way, right? For having done bad things. And then you have this really kind of traditional Christian sense of like, you have to pay for the things that you've done. And then you get to be sort of like purified, but you have to be punished. But also it's like Ganja kind of seemed like she felt more guilt over murdering people than he did, even though she was fully signing up for it. Right. And I wonder if it's kind of like that means that she, like she can sort of keep going because she has more of the moral, more of some kind of moral sense, right? But you've obviously, there's all of this like classical African art throughout the movie and the idea of then like introducing Christianity in this way, like their attention with each other. And again, a really interesting way, I think. And the movie doesn't, it's like balancing both those things without coming out on the side of one or the other, which I just found really fascinating. And obviously all of those ideas and influences are really important and alive in Black life in America. And especially in the 70s, where kind of like the Pan-African stuff was really going on in a major way. It really made me think, which I always appreciate at the end of a movie, even if like I had some trouble with it. I really, really liked the ending because it didn't sort of solve the question the movie was asking, which I'm sure is also part of the reason why when the distributor got it, they were like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> like, uh... They were like, not only can I not understand what's happening, but this film has like five minutes of sex and a full frontal nude penis in the final <laughs> scene. <laughs> so, and he like yeah. zooms in on the penis. Like it's, there's a lot going on. And yeah, many decades later, Spike Lee remade this in a much more conventional fashion. I watched the trailer today and was like, hmm. (laughs) I think the main purpose of that film was basically it just got more people aware of the existence of Ganja and Hess. Like, I'm sure people enjoyed his remake, uh, but I don't really see any point in making a narratively conventional remake of a film like this. Yeah, it got kind of middling reviews. Yeah. I remember when it happened although I had I didn't know this movie existed at the time so I did not know very much about what was going on but it was funded on Kickstarter and I remember that being like in the news oh interesting yeah. I guess that explains why it's like not got super famous people apart from pre-fame Rami Malek one of the articles I was reading about this one talked about that film and said you know it's fine. It's pretty entertaining. Apparently there's a lot of bits of it that's literally like shot for shot the same as this movie. The one critique that this critic had was that like there was a lot, it was a lot more male gazy than this movie, which makes sense to me because that's a problem Spike Lee has. But that basically like he just loves this movie so much. Um, and I'm sure like, a lot of his motivation was kind of to get the profile raised. I don't ever really get the remake thing, but, like, more power to him, I guess. But, yeah, this movie was really fascinating. I would recommend watching it when you are in the frame of mind to watch a challenging experimental film, which I was not last night. But I'm definitely really glad that I saw it, and it's pretty widely available, which 
is one of, I mean, we complain about the whole streaming situation all the time, and there's a lot of frustrating business stuff going on, but one of the great things about the fact that streaming exists is that you can just watch a movie like this at any time that you want, which is really cool, and was not ever possible in the past, so... um, Yeah, and if possible, try and get the Kino Lorber version, which is, you know, fully restored and also has subtitles. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a couple non-restored films recently and just has made me all the more appreciative of the work those people do. So in general, if you have the money to spare, it's worth buying a restored movie every once in a while. But thank you again to Asante for choosing this. This was super interesting. Next week, we're going to switch it up and (laughs) move from, you know, esoteric art film to as big as it gets in American cinema slash all cinema and watch Jaws. We were trying to come up with a summary movie and that seemed about as summary as it gets. I have somehow never seen Jaws. So I'm excited to watch this for the first time. Thanks to everyone as always for listening. If you would like to support us on Patreon and perhaps request an episode for us to discuss, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.